You may be seated. In the uh, peculiar, sometimes timing of God, we are going to begin uh, our study in 2023 uh, with the same character we began our study in 2022 with. You probably don't remember uh, the first sermon in 2022 in our Matthew series. I'll remind you, that was in chapter 3, and it was the introduction of John the Baptist. He appears one other time as a significant character in Matthew's gospel, and that is our text uh, for this morning. Uh, If you turn with me in your copy of God's Word uh, to Matthew chapter 14, you can find this on page 820 uh, of your pew Bibles. We will look at uh, the account of uh, John the Baptist, particularly uh, his death, a somewhat uh, gruesome and infamous uh, death at the hands uh, of Herod. So if you follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, what a a gruesome and somewhat strange passage you have for us today. We know that every Word in the Bible is breathed out by your Spirit. It's profitable for us. We pray that this harrowing tale would indeed profit to us. Uh, That we would learn of uh, the faithful model that was John the Baptist and we would be warned of the faithless model that was the fearful Herod. And in these ways, we would see Christ here lifted to us. We would see the foreshadowing uh, of the one to come the faithful Lord who suffers just a similar uh, brutal death, but rises again to bring truth, judgment, and grace as far as the curse is found. Show us, even in a text like this, our King and Savior Jesus, if we might trust and follow him today. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you who are interested in, in Hollywood and The things of uh, movies and TVs and stage performances, you know that we're in the midst of award season. 
Even for those of us, like myself, that doesn't follow any, any, any sort of Hollywood awards or anything like that, uh, there's still at least an awareness of the types of awards that are given out, right? Every year there's a best director and there's a, there's a you know, best soundtrack or score uh, for the movies. There's best actors and actresses. And then there's a, a unique award every year. It's best supporting actor. Right? It's not the, the main one in the film or the movie. It's not the main uh, lady who's performing, but it's somebody that has a, a lower role, but they do it so well, it's uh, notable, and they receive an, an award for it. Sometimes the supporting actor is, or actress is so good, they're called scene stealers. Right? They take away from the other players. Right? They're only, they only appear in a few scenes in the movie, but they're so good, they take away from everyone else, and we remember them when we think of that movie. If we were to open uh, an envelope of the best supporting actor in Matthew's gospel, the award would go, I believe, to John the Baptist. Not because of the amount of screen time he gets. Right? He, he's barely in this gospel. Right? He appears in these two significant passages, the beginning of chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 14. But his role is so significant. His scenes are so intense that they foreshadow what is to come with the main character, who, of course, is Jesus in the gospel. We actually see somewhat of a parallel that John the Baptist comes on the scene in chapter 3, and he, he preaches a, a, a message of repentance, and then Jesus comes after him, and he preaches that same message. John sort of lays the, founding, the foundation or the groundwork for Jesus to come. And then he appears again sort of out of nowhere in chapter 14. And what happens, he has a faithful ministry and yet he is put to death because his ministry threatens the powers of the day. Does that sound familiar? Foreshadowing of what is to come in the second half now of Matthew's gospel. His scenes are heavy in meaning even in his death. I want you to see the meaning of this death or this passage this morning. And it's, it's simple, and yet I think it is significant for every one of us. And it's this, the world may silence God's messengers, but they will never silence his message. John the Baptist is silenced in his death. His message of the law and the gospel of God cannot be silenced. And it presses on even after him. The world may silence God's messengers, but they will never silence his message. So if John the Baptist is the best supporting actor, there's another significant character on the scene, and that's Herod. And I want to look at both of these men, John the Baptist and Herod. We're going to see how these two men, these two actors, bring home this message of silencing the messenger, but not the message. First, I want you to see John the Baptist. I'm going to call him, for our outline, uh, a faithful ministry. John the Baptist shows us in his brief scenes a faithful ministry. And he fulfills a, a few roles, right? First, we see he's, uh, he's a minister. Uh, not a minister in the sense of a, of a pastor, but rather he has a significant ministry. He has a peculiar, particular, unique ministry in all redemptive history. Go back to to chapter 3, he appears on the scene of history with one purpose. You remember that purpose. It's to prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming as a preparer. And the way he does that, not his weird clothing and his sort of strange diet, uh, he does it in his message to confess your sin and repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is 
the bullhorn of John the Baptist's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we, we, we usually think of John the Baptist sort of as the, the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and he is that, but it's maybe more accurate to think of him as the end of the ministry of the prophets, right? He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's, he's almost oddly placed, right? He could have his own uh, little book at the end of the Old Testament, and that would be appropriate. Right? He's, the, he's sort of the final step. You can think of the, the paving of a road, right? You've maybe seen this in your own neighborhood, or if you've driven down 26, I don't know, in the last 20 years, right? And, and in the next 20 years, you're going to see it. Uh, there's all that equipment, right? And I know the, the, the young boys here can correct me of the different types of construction equipment that go down that road, right? The, the dozers and the, the asphalt spreaders and the concrete mixers and all these trucks, right? They're, they have their different roles and they're preparing the way. They're paving the road. And John the Baptist is sort of that last truck. Maybe he's the, the one that put the stripes down, right? The last of these Old Testament prophets preparing the way for Jesus to come on the scene. It's so close. Jesus is on the heels of John the Baptist as he appears on the stage of history. So John, this faithful ministry, he plays that first role of a minister, preparing the way of the Lord. And he does that particularly as a messenger. He has a message that he repeats over and over again. That message is repent and believe. To repent of sin, to see sin as an offense before a creator, God, who is holy and righteous and just. To turn from that sin in confessing and repenting of it before that God. And John the Baptist's message, if it wasn't clear early on, it's clear here. The message to repent is for everyone. The most powerful person in the region of the day, Herod, cannot escape the message of repentance. Not a single one of us can escape the call of the Bible, the call of God to repent. We don't escape that by becoming powerful. We don't avoid that by becoming rich. We can't pay off. We can't give some money so that we don't have to repent, right? We can't avoid repentance by showing up to church every time the doors are open, right? There's no, John's message of repentance is for everyone. And it rises even up here to Herod. Now, the particulars of what he calls Herod to repent of are sort of fascinating. They're also uh, kind of lurid, right? They're kind of gross when we look uh, too closely at it. Uh, what's going on here is Herod has taken his brother's wife as his own wife. So Herod the Great has a bunch of sons. Uh, one of them is this Herod. Uh, he also has another son, Philip. Philip has a wife, Herodias. Uh, this Philip, the younger Philip, takes his half-brother, because King Herod had a bunch of wives, a bunch of different sons from all those wives. He takes his half-brother's wife. He leaves his own wife, takes her to be his own. So this is an unlawful, we might say, marriage. And John the Baptist is calling him out on it. Now, it gets even weirder because uh, Herodias also happens to be not only his half-brother's wife, but also another one of his brother's daughters. She's also his half-niece, uh, it's just a mess. Uh, he marries this woman, so there's, it, it's a pretty, I tried to look up a family tree online to put it in your bulletin, so, but there's no clear family, it's a total, it wouldn't fit in the bulletin, right? There's arrows and lines going everywhere, so you just imagine it with me. John the Baptist, he sees right through it, and he rebukes Herod. 
And look at verse 4. It says, John had been saying to him. So over and over again. He doesn't just sort of say it once. All right, I got that message out. Let me go about my business. No, over and over again. He's coming uh, before this man of power. And he's telling him over and over again that he is in sin. That he is in an unlawful uh, marriage. That he needs to repent. Now, there's often much discussion over how John the Baptist here is a model for us. And I hear it referenced often that pastors should be just like John the Baptist or we shouldn't be like John the Baptist at all. Uh, and even Christians, right? How do we model our lives or not model them uh, after John the Baptist? Is he a model for us? And I think the simple answer is yes and no, right? Uh, he is a unique character on the scene of history, right? Nobody else has the ministry of John the Baptist, right? Uh, we are not preparing the way for Jesus. We're not the last in a lineage of prophets. There aren't any more prophets. We're not prophets that stand in that line that follow after uh, John's ministry. We usually don't have the ear of those in power like John the Baptist uh, seems to have. And so there's, there's certainly not a one-to-one correlation of him being a model for us. And yet he also shows us I do, I, I do think the call for us as the people of God to speak the truth uh, and that we are to be bold and that we are to be courageous uh, in speaking about the things that we see around us. Now, the New Testament is clear that we are to speak the truth in love. Right? We're not angry people that yell all the time. Right? Our speech is seasoned with love and concern for others. But I, I think the courage of John the Baptist, the boldness of John the Baptist, is a challenge for each of us. Not to think, how can I be John the Baptist, but maybe how can some of his uh, courage rub off on me, right? Because he is courageous. Because not only is he the minister, not only is he the messenger, the third role and the final role he plays is that of the martyr. He, he dies, right? He dies uh, because he won't shut up apparently. <laughs> He's on and on. He is imprisoned. Uh, then he is put to death. It is a wrongful death. There's no trial, right? Even the beheading was unlawful in the day, uh, but he is put to death for his message. I think one of the big lessons from the faithful ministry of John the Baptist is that the truth that you and I believe and speak is a threat to the world. The truth that the church believes and speaks is a threat to the world. Particularly here, the, church, the, the truth we believe and preach is repentance. And the repentance calls upon everyone. Not just those people in our culture that we don't like, that we don't vote like, that we don't look like, that we don't sound like, right? The message of repentance is not just for those out there, Right? It certainly is, but it's for us as well. Right? The, the message of repentance is unavoidable, preached for everyone. It's telling that in John the Baptist's martyrdom and death, it is not because Herod got so fed up with hearing about Jesus. He got so fed up, or his wife really is the one who got so fed up with hearing about her own marriage. Marriage, sort of like we've come full circle 2,000 years later, right? Marriage is the pressure point uh, of the day in the secular government over the people of God. 
It's not always marriage, of course. I think we feel that certainly uh, in our current cultural moment. But you can look throughout where the church has been and in time and history and see that the, the morality and the ethic that the church believes and preaches is a threat to the secular world, world around us. We must be ready to bear the consequences of that threat. It's one thing, I might step on some toes here, but it's one thing to go on Facebook this afternoon and make some angry post about what's wrong with the world around us. It's a whole other thing to go and, and with loving care and concern speak words of truth to our neighbors or to our family members or even at times to other church members, right? There is a time and a place to speak boldly and lovingly, and as we do so, we must be ready to bear the consequences of what we believe. Now, I doubt that would be martyrdom, that will be martyrdom like it is for John, but there are still consequences. There are still very real consequences for believing and speaking the truth uh, that threatens the world. And I know many of you can attest to this, that what threatens the world now might not have threatened the world when we were growing up, right? And I think as, as the church, as the body of Christ, we need to understand that we are discipling our children and discipling the next generation to believe something that will bring consequences upon them that we might not have faced. And that doesn't mean that we need to give them something that's palatable for the world around them, but we need to be aware of what we are discipling our children into. We're not discipling our children into an easy life. Right? We're not discipling the next generation of our church into a world in which they will bear no consequences for what we instruct them to believe and to, and to speak. Rather, they're probably going to face more challenging consequences than many of us have faced. So I would call you as an older generation, if that's you, to think about how you are praying for and investing in the younger folks who go out into a challenging world. And how are we helping them to be prepared to follow the model, when called for it, of John the Baptist? How are you investing in the next generation that's going to face the consequences of believing and speaking God's truth? One thing that I have learned, and maybe it's taken me too long to learn as a dad, is I need to listen to my kids. Because I don't know, sometimes I don't know the pressure that they're facing because I didn't face it. Are we listening? Are we preparing? Are we discipling? Are we helping? Are we counseling the whole church to face the consequences of believing and speaking the truth of God's word? John the Baptist helps us in his model of a faithful ministry to do that. Why are there so many consequences, though? Why are there such serious consequences? Well, that's who, what our second character shows us, and that is Herod. And our heading here, we're going to call Herod a fearful enemy. He's a fearful enemy not because we're afraid of him, but because of what he's afraid of. Herod is marked here, the one with the power and the authority to put someone else to death. He's the one who's afraid. John the Baptist is not afraid. Herod is afraid of losing those things that are dear to him. If we have ears to hear, we have a lot to learn from Herod. Let me show you what he's afraid of. Let me show you some of the things he is afraid for. 
Number one, he's afraid of losing his position. We see this in verses 3, 4, and 5. He's afraid of losing his position. What is his position? Well, he's a tetrarch. It's a weird name. Uh, We don't use that much. It means a regional ruler. Technically, it means somebody over one-fourth of tetra, right? Four over one-fourth of the kingdom or the region. Uh, But in in his day, it was often just used to refer to a regional ruler. And it is clear from his actions that he is afraid of losing this position. His position is over Galilee and sort of the region around it. And John the Baptist threatens his position. Whether John the Baptist is alive and speaking or whether he's dead and the people who respect him as a prophet are rebelling against Herod, either way, he is a threat to the position of ruler that Herod holds. Now, why would a Gentile ruler care if an Old Testament Jewish prophet is calling him out on his sin? Do you ever think about that? I mean, of what significance would that be that Herod is called out for having really an incestuous marriage? Well, the thing is, he, in his position, he is ruling over a Jewish populace. So it is helpful that there aren't billboards all around the Jewish parts of town declaring what a sinner and lawbreaker their Gentile ruler is. Herod's a pragmatist. Uh, He wants to rule well. He wants people to follow him. He doesn't want to lose his position. John the Baptist is a thorn in his side, so he silences him. Sort of. First, he just puts him in prison because he knows that whether he's alive or whether he's he's dead, he's a threat to what Herod so dearly loves. That's his own position of power. There's a cautionary tale sort of buried in here, isn't there? That is that power brings with it the fear of losing power, <laughs> even amongst Christians. Whether we are a king or whether we have just a small modicum of power in the church of Christ, we should be wary of the fear of losing power that could so blind us to doing what is right. King Herod is afraid for his position But his position is just a step to get towards something even dearer to him that he's afraid of losing. And that's his reputation. We see this in verses 6 to 11. Herod is afraid of losing his reputation. The scene transitions to a birthday party. It's a raucous birthday party. This is not a kid's party with pinatas and streamers, right? And a little, uh, like, vanilla sheet cake. No, this is a... um, If Matthew's gospel had a rating, it would be R because of this scene. <laughs> this is rough. It's all his family members, his friends are there. There's food, there's drink flowing, there's dancing going on. There's even apparently his wife's daughter. So this is now his stepdaughter dancing for them. It's possible that she's it's probable that she's a young teenager at this point. Uh, it said, the text tells us that Herod is pleased by her dancing uh, and so he gives her an oath, or he, he, he swears an oath, he will give her whatever she asks for. This may bring to mind uh, a scene uh, from this summer uh, when Jim was preaching through Esther. Uh, he preached of another sort of party in Esther chapter 1, another king there who was sort of a pretender to the throne, right? Sort of insecure, 
sort of afraid of his own reputation, trotting out all of the signs of power and authority because he was actually empty on the inside. Herod doesn't actually have the authority of a king. He doesn't have the authority to do what he's promised. Now, he's only a tetrarch. But the promise of a pretender is this empty boasting, isn't it? He is so afraid of his reputation that he, he brags and he boasts about something he doesn't even have the power for. You go to, those, you, you know, you go to a party or an event and it's usually the, the person who's talking the loudest and the longest that's the most insecure, right? He's the most insecure one in the room. He's making uh, these promises to give this young girl whatever she asks for. Well, for some reason, she asks him for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I don't know if any of you ask for something like this for Christmas. I hope not. <laughs> this is not a typical request of a young teenage girl, I hope. At least not in my house. This came, it must have been, from Herodias. Right? You can almost read uh, uh, the background of this disastrous marriage. Right? They've both unlawfully left their spouses and they're together now. Uh, Herod is frustrated with John the Baptist. Herodias is done with him, right? She just, wants him to, she just wants him dead. She doesn't care about the political calculations that Herod has to keep to make sure that he keeps his position and he keeps the Jewish populace under him somewhat happy. Herodias is just sort of the, the powerful woman behind the throne of the weak king. And she tricks him. She tricks her own husband. What a wonderful marriage we've got going on here, right? He, she tricks Herod into cutting off the head of John the Baptist. Now look, look at verse 9. How does King Herod respond to this? He was sorry. Now, don't think that all of a sudden he's gone soft and he loves John the Baptist. Oh, he's going to lose his, his good guy, right? No, he's sorry because he's going to mess up what he loves the most, which is his own position. Right? He had this plan to keep him quiet in prison, and now she's blowing up his plan, he was sorry, but he kills him anyway. Why? Because of two things. Number one, his oaths. And number two, his guests. He made a promise. He'd give whatever she asked for. So she asked for it, so he has to do it, right? That's the calculus. Now, let me say something obvious that we know from the pages of Scripture. Uh, you making a promise that you have to keep by sinning is not a promise that you should keep. Right? You are, or as the confession of faith says, uh, your promise cannot oblige you to sin, cannot make you sin. If the only way that you can keep a promise that you've made is by sinning, don't keep that promise. Uh, if you have to give up some extra money you didn't want to part with, if you have to experience some hardship, then yeah, you need to keep the promise that you've made. But not, not, to, the, not to the point of sinning, not to the point of unlawfully cutting somebody's head off. The real problem here, though, is not the oath. The real problem are the guests. Herod doesn't want to look bad. He's shown off how powerful he is. And now what are they all going to think if he all of a sudden reneges on the promise that he's made? That's the real rub here. I mean, I know you've had a time in your life where you have done something you should not have done because you didn't want to look bad in front of other people. We call it peer pressure, call it call whatever you want. How far will this fear take us? Well, for Herod, it takes it all the way to chopping off the head of John the Baptist. And that's the end of the scene. Verse 11. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. 
There's the, the, the happy family living happily ever after, right? I mean, what, what a scene. Herod, Herodias, this, this young girl. There's one, more, there's one more thing Herod is afraid of losing. He doesn't know it yet. But he's afraid of losing his own salvation. We don't see that here. We have to go back to the first two verses to see that. You see, what Matthew's been giving us is a flashback. Verses 3 to 12 are a flashback. In the chronological recording of Matthew's narrative, we go, to, we go back to verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So remember where we've been, right? All of the parables, a spreading fame. People are rejecting and turning away from Jesus. Even his hometown, we saw it last week in Nazareth. Herod's hearing about it all. He says, verse 2, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. You read that, and you think as a reader, wait, John the Baptist is dead? So Matthew, pause, takes us back, tells us what happens with John the Baptist and Herod and his death. But look at verse 2. What, what's going on with Herod? What's going on is the power of a guilty conscience. He hears of somebody doing wondrous things, and he thinks to himself, the most logical thought, must be the guy whose head I chopped off, come back from the dead to haunt me, right? No, this is the, the power of a guilty conscience. Herod is dreaming up this ridiculous scenario that could not come to pass because he knows in his heart of hearts that he has done wrong. He has put to death an innocent man, and his conscience won't let him go. Guilty consciences can dream up ridiculous scenarios, can't they? Some of you are familiar with uh, the old Shakespeare book, Macbeth. You know the scene, Lady Macbeth, and she conspires to commit murder, and afterwards she sees spots of blood on her hands, and she washes them off, and they're still there. <laughs> and she washes them off again, and they're still there. And for this incredibly harrowing scene as she is scrubbing relentlessly on her hands. She can't get the spots of blood off. They're not really there. It's just her guilty conscience. This is how God has designed our conscience to work. We read, Paul writes in Romans 2, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts when their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The law is written on Herod's heart, and he cannot escape it. You see, we see a conflicted man. He fears God, doesn't he? But he also fears man. And the fear of man won in Herod's decision to put to death John the Baptist. Or we could say it another way, he is on the horns of a dilemma between on the one side his reputation and on the other side repentance. He chooses his reputation and his conscience won't leave him alone. Now, Herod is not a psychopath that has no conscience. Rather, I think he's just a normal guy who keeps sinning and not repenting such that his conscience becomes almost seared. So that he's dreaming up these scenarios of a dead man coming back to life to judge him for what he has done. 
Now, this particular fear is unfounded, right? John the Baptist isn't coming back to life to judge Herod, but it does foreshadow something much more fearful, doesn't it? There's somebody else that's going to be put to death. And he really is going to come back to life. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is he going to come back to life, he is going to be raised from the dead and he is going to return in judgment. Your sins will find you out. And Herod has discovered the truth that you can kill the messenger, but you can't silence the message. (laughs) You see, the message cannot be silenced. It is both the message of the law that declares to every sinner that you are guilty and must repent of your sin, and it is the message of gospel that declares to every sinner that as you repent and trust in Christ, you are called not guilty but innocent. You are declared not unrighteous and filthy but cleansed and righteous in the sight of God. That same message of law and gospel, no matter how many messengers are silenced, the message cannot cease. There is hope, at least in the timeline of Matthew's gospel, there is still hope for Herod's guilty conscience, and that is to repent. Here he is, reputation or repentance. And I wonder how many of you might be like Herod this morning. Probably haven't ordered the head of your enemy chopped off. (laughs) But are you somehow silencing the truth? Are you twisting and distorting God's word so it doesn't say to you what it really says? Are you taking those most convicting verses, calling your particular sin out, and you're putting those on the bottom shelf while majoring in the other verses? Are you following Christ and yet you're repenting less and less and your heart is growing harder and harder and your conscience is no longer accusing you like it once did. I mean, a practical question for this is to ask, when's the last time you apologized to someone? I mean, New Year's, New Resolution, looking back at the previous year, can you remember the last time you said you were sorry to your spouse, to your kids, to a fellow church member, to a coworker? Some of you are going to make New Year's resolutions. You're going to have a lot of stuff on it. I hate to burst your bubble. You're not going to do most of it. (laughs) So put on the bottom of that New Year's resolutions list, here's something you can do. Repent. Of all the stuff you don't do, repent. (laughs) Of all the stuff that you know you should do but you don't, all the stuff you don't want to do but you keep doing. That's a New Year's resolution we can keep, isn't it? To repent daily. Martin Luther wrote, when Jesus said repent, he willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Repentance or reputation. And that's the end of John the Baptist's scene. It's the last scene. It's ominous. It's foreboding. If it had a soundtrack, it would be tense music. But then he fades away, verse 12. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. The main actor now returns to the fore. And Jesus 
will go through the rest of Matthew's gospel and he will face worse opposition than John faced. And he will face imprisonment as John faced. And he will face unlawful death just as John the Baptist faced. But with him comes the greater resurrection because it's real. (laughs) It's not imagined in someone's guilty conscience. It actually happened. And a return. What does John the Baptist teach us? Teach us. He teaches us that the messenger may be silenced, but this message remains. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, I pray today that you would soften each and every heart in this room. That whatever hurdles there are, Right now, in our minds, keeping us from repenting, you would tear those down. Whatever ways we are justifying our own words and thoughts and actions, you would blow those up. And whatever ways we are fearing of losing our position or our reputation, we would understand if we hold on to those things, we have a far greater thing to fear losing. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the incredible gift this morning of repentance. And as we come and approach the table, as we sing a hymn of repentance, that you would do a work in our hearts. We would not be like Herod, the fearful enemy, but we would follow in the steps of your Son and our faithful Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, we are going to sing one of the great uh, psalms, Uh, of repentance in our Psalter, Psalm 51. Uh, You can find this in your hymnal as hymn 486, God be merciful to me. Would you turn and stand with me?